Introduction and Chapter 1 of The Wealth of Nations, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Book 4. Of Systems of Political Economy. Introduction and Chapter 1. Part A. Of the Principle of the Commercial or Mercantile System. Introduction. Political economy, considered as a branch of the science of a statesman or legislator, proposes two distinct objects. First, to provide a plentiful revenue or subsistence for the people, or, more properly, to enable them to provide such a revenue or subsistence for themselves, and, secondly, to supply the state or commonwealth with a revenue sufficient for the public services. It proposes to enrich both the people and the sovereign. The different progress of opulence in different ages and nations has given occasion to two different systems of political economy, with regard to enriching the people. The one may be called the system of commerce, the other that of agriculture. I shall endeavor to explain both as fully and distinctly as I can, and shall begin with the system of commerce. It is the modern system, and is best understood in our own country and in our own times. Chapter 1. That wealth consists in money, or in gold or silver, is a popular notion which naturally arises from the double function of money, as the instrument of commerce, and as the measure of value. In consequence of its being the instrument of commerce, when we have money we can more readily obtain whatever else we have occasion for, than by means of any other commodity. The great affair, we always find, is to get money. When that is obtained, there is no difficulty in making any subsequent purchase. In consequence of its being the measure of value, we estimate that of all other commodities by the quantity of money which they will exchange for. We say of a rich man that he is worth a great deal, and of a poor man that he is worth very little money. A frugal man, or a man eager to be rich, is said to love money, and a careless, a generous, or a profuse man is said to be indifferent about it. To grow rich is to get money, and wealth and money, in short, are, in common language, considered as in every respect synonymous. A rich country, in the same manner as a rich man, is supposed to be a country abounding in money, and to heap up gold and silver in any country is supposed to be the readiest way to enrich it. For some time after the discovery of America, the first inquiry of the Spaniards, when they arrived upon any unknown coast, used to be if there was any gold or silver to be found in the neighborhood. By the information which they received, they judged whether it was worth while to make a settlement there, or if the country was worth conquering. Plano Carpino, a monk sent ambassador from the king of France to one of the sons of the famous Genghis Khan, says that the Tartars used frequently to ask him if there was plenty of sheep and oxen in the kingdom of France. Their inquiry had the same object with that of the Spaniards. They wanted to know if the country was rich enough to be worth the conquering. Among the Tartars, as among all other nations of shepherds, who are generally ignorant of the use of money, cattle are the instruments of commerce and the measures of value. Wealth, therefore, according to them, consisted in cattle, as, according to the Spaniards, it consisted in gold and silver. 
of the two the tartar notion perhaps was the nearest to the truth mr locke remarks a distinction between money and other movable goods all other movable goods he says are of so consumable a nature that the wealth which consists in them cannot be much depended on and a nation which abounds in them one year may without any exportation but merely by their own waste and extravagance be in great want of them the next money on the contrary is a steady friend which though it may travel about from hand to hand yet if it can be kept from going out of the country is not very liable to be wasted and consumed gold and silver therefore are according to him the most solid and substantial part of the movable wealth of a nation and to multiply those metals ought he thinks upon that account to be the great object of its political economy others admit that if a nation could be separated from all the world it would be of no consequence how much or how little money circulated in it the consumable goods which were circulated by means of this money would only be exchanged for a greater or a smaller number of pieces but the real wealth or poverty of the country they allow would depend altogether upon the abundance or scarcity of those consumable goods but it is otherwise they think with countries which have connections with foreign nations and which are obliged to carry on foreign wars and to maintain fleets and armies in distant countries this they say cannot be done but by sending abroad money to pay them with and a nation cannot send much money abroad unless it has a good deal at home every such nation therefore must endeavor in time of peace to accumulate gold and silver that when occasion requires it may have wherewithal to carry on foreign wars in consequence of those popular notions all the different nations of europe have studied though to little purpose every possible means of accumulating gold and silver in their respective countries spain and portugal the proprietors of the principal mines which supply europe with those metals have either prohibited their exportation under the severest penalties or subjected it to a considerable duty the like prohibition seems anciently to have made a part of the policy of most other european nations it is even to be found where we should least of all expect to find it in some old scotch acts of parliament which forbid under heavy penalties the carrying gold or silver forth of the kingdom the like policy anciently took place both in france and england when those countries became commercial the merchants found this prohibition upon many occasions extremely inconvenient they could frequently buy more advantageously with gold and silver than with any other commodity the foreign goods which they wanted either to import into their own or to carry to some other foreign country they remonstrated therefore against this prohibition as hurtful to trade they represented first that the exportation of gold and silver in order to purchase foreign goods did not always diminish the quantity of those metals in the kingdom that on the contrary it might frequently increase the quantity because if the consumption of foreign goods was not thereby increased in the country those goods might be re-exported to foreign countries and being there sold for a large profit might bring back much more treasure than was originally sent out to purchase them mr munn compares this operation of foreign trade to the seed-time and harvest of agriculture if we only behold says he the actions of the husbandman in the seed-time when he casteth away much good corn into the ground we shall account him rather a madman than a husbandman 
but when we consider his labors in the harvest which is the end of his endeavors we shall find the worth and plentiful increase of his actions they represented secondly that this prohibition could not hinder the exportation of gold and silver which on account of the smallness of their bulk in proportion to their value could easily be smuggled abroad that this exportation could only be prevented by a proper attention to what they called the balance of trade that when the country exported to a greater value than it imported a balance became due to it from foreign nations which was necessarily paid to it in gold and silver and thereby increased the quantity of those metals in the kingdom but that when it imported to a greater value than it exported a contrary balance became due to foreign nations which was necessarily paid to them in the same manner and thereby diminished that quantity that in this case to prohibit the exportation of those metals could not prevent it but only by making it more dangerous render it more expensive that the exchange was thereby turned more against the country which owed the balance than it otherwise might have been the merchant who purchased a bill upon the foreign country being obliged to pay the banker who sold it not only for the natural risk trouble and expense of sending the money thither but for the extraordinary risk arising from the prohibition but that the more the exchange was against any country the more the balance of trade became necessarily against it the money of that country becoming necessarily of so much less value in comparison with that of the country to which the balance was due that if the exchange between england and holland for example was five per cent against england it would require one hundred and five ounces of silver in england to purchase a bill for one hundred ounces of silver in holland that one hundred and five ounces of silver in england therefore would be worth only one hundred ounces of silver in holland and would purchase only a proportionable quantity of dutch goods but that one hundred ounces of silver in holland on the contrary would be worth one hundred and five ounces in england and would purchase a proportionable quantity of english goods that the english goods which were sold to holland would be sold so much cheaper and the dutch goods which were sold to england so much dearer by the difference of the exchange that the one would draw so much less dutch money to england and the other so much more english money to holland as this difference amounted to and that the balance of trade therefore would necessarily be so much more against england and would require a greater balance of gold and silver to be exported to holland those arguments were partly solid and partly sophistical they were solid so far as they asserted that the exportation of gold and silver in trade might frequently be advantageous to the country they were solid too in asserting that no prohibition could prevent their exportation when private people found any advantage in exporting them but they were sophistical in supposing that either to preserve or to augment the quantity of those metals required more the attention of government than to preserve or to augment the quantity of any other useful commodities which the freedom of trade without any such attention never fails to supply in the proper quantity they were sophistical too perhaps in asserting that the high price of exchange necessarily increased what they called the unfavorable balance of trade or occasioned the exportation of a greater quantity of gold and silver that high price indeed was extremely disadvantageous to the merchants who had any money to pay in foreign countries they paid so much dearer for the bills which their bankers granted them upon those countries 
but though the risk arising from the prohibition might occasion some extraordinary expense to the bankers it would not necessarily carry any more money out of the country this expense would generally be all laid out in the country in smuggling the money out of it and could seldom occasion the exportation of a single sixpence beyond the precise sum drawn for the high price of exchange too would naturally dispose the merchants to endeavour to make their exports nearly balance their imports in order that they might have this high exchange to pay upon as small a sum as possible the high price of exchange besides must necessarily have operated as a tax in raising the price of foreign goods and thereby diminishing their consumption it would tend therefore not to increase but to diminish what they called the unfavorable balance of trade and consequently the exportation of gold and silver such as they were however those arguments convinced the people to whom they were addressed they were addressed by merchants to parliaments and to the councils of princes to nobles and to country gentlemen by those who were supposed to understand trade to those who were conscious to themselves that they knew nothing about the matter that foreign trade enriched the country experience demonstrated to the nobles and country gentlemen as well as to the merchants but how or in what manner none of them well knew the merchants knew perfectly in what manner it enriched themselves it was their business to know it but to know in what manner it enriched the country was no part of their business the subject never came into their consideration but when they had occasion to apply to their country for some change in the laws relating to foreign trade it then became necessary to say something about the beneficial effects of foreign trade and the manner in which those effects were obstructed by the laws as they then stood to the judges who were to decide the business it appeared a most satisfactory account of the matter when they were told that foreign trade brought money into the country but that the laws in question hindered it from bringing so much as it otherwise would do those arguments therefore produced the wished-for effect the prohibition of exporting gold and silver was in france and england confined to the coin of those respective countries the exportation of foreign coin and of bullion was made free in holland and in some other places this liberty was extended even to the coin of the country the attention of government was turned away from guarding against the exportation of gold and silver to watch over the balance of trade as the only cause which could occasion any augmentation or diminution of those metals from one fruitless care it was turned away to another care much more intricate much more embarrassing and just equally fruitless the title of munn's book england's treasure in foreign trade became a fundamental maxim in the political economy not of england only but of all other commercial countries the inland or home trade the most important of all the trade in which an equal capital affords the greatest revenue and creates the greatest employment to the people of the country was considered as subsidiary only to foreign trade it neither brought money into the country it was said nor carried any out of it the country therefore could never become either richer or poorer by means of it except so far as its prosperity or decay might indirectly influence the state of foreign trade a country that has no mines of its own must undoubtedly draw its gold and silver from foreign countries in the same manner as one that has no vineyards of its own must draw its wines it does not seem necessary however that the attention of government should be more turned towards the one than towards the other object 
a country that has wherewithal to buy wine will always get the wine which it has occasion for and a country that has wherewithal to buy gold and silver will never be in want of those metals they are to be bought for a certain price like all other commodities and as they are the price of all other commodities so all other commodities are the price of those metals we trust with perfect security that the freedom of trade without any attention of government will always supply us with the wine which we have occasion for and we may trust with equal security that it will always supply us with all the gold and silver which we can afford to purchase or to employ either in circulating our commodities or in other uses the quantity of every commodity which human industry can either purchase or produce naturally regulates itself in every country according to the effectual demand or according to the demand of those who are willing to pay the whole rent labor and profits which must be paid in order to prepare and bring it to market but no commodities regulate themselves more easily or more exactly according to this effectual demand than gold and silver because on account of the small bulk and great value of those metals no commodities can be more easily transported from one place to another from the places where they are cheap to those where they are dear from the places where they exceed to those where they fall short of this effectual demand if there were in england for example an effectual demand for an additional quantity of gold a packet-boat could bring from lisbon or from wherever else it was to be had fifty tons of gold which could be coined into more than five millions of guineas but if there were an effectual demand for grain to the same value to import it would require at five guineas a ton a million of tons of shipping or a thousand ships of a thousand tons each the navy of england would not be sufficient when the quantity of gold and silver imported into any country exceeds the effectual demand no vigilance of government can prevent their exportation all the sanguinary laws of spain and portugal are not able to keep their gold and silver at home the continual importations from peru and brazil exceed the effectual demand of those countries and sink the price of those metals there below that in the neighboring countries if on the contrary in any particular country their quantity fell short of the effectual demand so as to raise their price above that of the neighboring countries the government would have no occasion to take any pains to import them if it were even to take pains to prevent their importation it would not be able to effectuate it those metals when the spartans had got wherewithal to purchase them broke through all the barriers which the laws of lycurgus opposed to their entrance into lacedaemon all the sanguinary laws of the customs are not able to prevent the importation of the teas of the dutch and gottenberg east india companies because somewhat cheaper than those of the british company a pound of tea however is about a hundred times the bulk of one of the highest prices sixteen shillings that is commonly paid for it in silver and more than two thousand times the bulk of the same price in gold and consequently just so many times more difficult to smuggle it is partly owing to the easy transportation of gold and silver from the places where they abound to those where they are wanted that the price of those metals does not fluctuate continually like that of the greater part of other commodities which are hindered by their bulk from shifting their situation when the market happens to be either over or understocked with them the price of those metals indeed is not altogether exempted from variation but the changes to which it is liable are generally slow gradual and uniform 
In Europe, for example, it is supposed, without much foundation, perhaps, that during the course of the present and preceding century, they have been constantly, but gradually, sinking in their value, on account of the continual importations from the Spanish West Indies. But to make any sudden change in the price of gold and silver, so as to raise or lower at once, sensibly and remarkably, the money price of all other commodities, requires such a revolution in commerce as that occasioned by the discovery of America. If, notwithstanding all this, gold and silver should at any time fall short in a country which has wherewithal to purchase them, there are more expedients for supplying their place than that of almost any other commodity. If the materials of manufacture are wanted, industry must stop. If provisions are wanted, the people must starve. But if money is wanted, barter will supply its place, though with a good deal of inconveniency. Buying and selling upon credit, and the different dealers compensating their credits with one another, once a month or once a year, will supply it with less inconveniency. A well-regulated paper money will supply it not only without any inconveniency, but in some cases with some advantages. Upon every account, therefore, the attention of government never was so unnecessarily employed as when directed to watch over the preservation or increase of the quantity of money in any country. No complaint, however, is more common than that of a scarcity of money. Money, like wine, must always be scarce with those who have neither wherewithal to buy it, nor credit to borrow it. Those who have either will seldom be in want either of the money or of the wine which they have occasion for. This complaint, however, of the scarcity of money is not always confined to improvident spendthrifts. It is sometimes general through a whole mercantile town and the country in its neighborhood. Overtrading is the common cause of it. Sober men, whose projects have been disproportioned to their capitals, are as likely to have neither wherewithal to buy money, nor credit to borrow it, as prodigals, whose expense has been disproportioned to their revenue. Before their projects can be brought to bear, their stock is gone, and their credit with it. They run about everywhere to borrow money, and everybody tells them that they have none to lend. Even such general complaints of the scarcity of money do not always prove that the usual number of gold and silver pieces are not circulating in the country, but that many people want those pieces who have nothing to give for them. When the profits of trade happen to be greater than ordinary, over-trading becomes a general error, both among great and small dealers. They do not always send more money abroad than usual, but they buy upon credit both at home and abroad, an unusual quantity of goods, which they send to some distant market, in hopes that the returns will come in before the demand for payment. The demand comes before the returns, and they have nothing at hand with which they can either purchase money or give solid security for borrowing. It is not any scarcity of gold and silver, but the difficulty which such people find in borrowing and which their creditor find in getting payment, that occasions the general complaint of the scarcity of money. It would be too ridiculous to go about seriously to prove that wealth does not consist in money or in gold and silver, but in what money purchases, and is valuable only for purchasing. Money, no doubt, makes always a part of the national capital, but it has already been shown that it generally makes but a small part, and always the most unprofitable part of it. 
it is not because wealth consists more essentially in money than in goods that the merchant finds it generally more easy to buy goods with money than to buy money with goods but because money is the known and established instrument of commerce for which everything is readily given in exchange but which is not always with equal readiness to be got in exchange for everything the greater part of goods besides are more perishable than money and he may frequently sustain a much greater loss by keeping them when his goods are upon hand too he is more liable to such demands for money as he may not be able to answer than when he has got their price in his coffers over and above all this his profit arises more directly from selling than from buying and he is upon all these accounts generally much more anxious to exchange his goods for money than his money for goods but though a particular merchant with abundance of goods in his warehouse may sometimes be ruined by not being able to sell them in time a nation or country is not liable to the same accident the whole capital of a merchant frequently consists in perishable goods destined for purchasing money but it is but a very small part of the annual produce of the land and labor of a country which can ever be destined for purchasing gold and silver from their neighbors the far greater part is circulated and consumed among themselves and even of the surplus which is sent abroad the greater part is generally destined for the purchase of other foreign goods though gold and silver therefore could not be had in exchange for the goods destined to purchase them the nation would not be ruined it might indeed suffer some loss and inconveniency and be forced upon some of those expedients which are necessary for supplying the place of money the annual produce of its land and labor however would be the same or very nearly the same as usual because the same or very nearly the same consumable capital would be employed in maintaining it and though goods do not always draw money so readily as money draws goods in the long run they draw it more necessarily than even it draws them goods can serve many other purposes besides purchasing money but money can serve no other purpose besides purchasing goods money therefore necessarily runs after goods but goods do not always or necessarily run after money the man who buys does not always mean to sell again but frequently to use or to consume whereas he who sells always means to buy again the one may frequently have done the whole but the other can never have done more than the one half of his business it is not for its own sake that men desire money but for the sake of what they can purchase with it consumable commodities it is said are soon destroyed whereas gold and silver are of a more durable nature and were it not for this continual exportation might be accumulated for ages together to the incredible augmentation of the real wealth of the country nothing therefore it is pretended can be more disadvantageous to any country than the trade which consists in the exchange of such lasting for such perishable commodities we do not however reckon that trade disadvantageous which consists in the exchange of the hardware of england for the wines of france and yet hardware is a very durable commodity and were it not for this continual exportation might too be accumulated for ages together to the incredible augmentation of the pots and pans of the country but it readily occurs that the number of such utensils is in every country necessarily limited by the use which there is for them that it would be absurd to have more pots and pans than were necessary for cooking the victuals usually consumed there and that if the quantity of victuals were to increase 
the number of pots and pans would readily increase along with it a part of the increased quantity of victuals being employed in purchasing them or in maintaining an additional number of workmen whose business it was to make them it should as readily occur that the quantity of gold and silver is in every country limited by the use which there is for those metals that their use consists in circulating commodities as coin and in affording a species of household furniture as plate that the quantity of coin in every country is regulated by the value of the commodities which are to be circulated by it increase that value and immediately a part of it will be sent abroad to purchase wherever it is to be had the additional quantity of coin requisite for circulating them that the quantity of plate is regulated by the number and wealth of those private families who choose to indulge themselves in that sort of magnificence increase the number and wealth of such families and a part of this increased wealth will most probably be employed in purchasing wherever it is to be found an additional quantity of plate that to attempt to increase the wealth of any country either by introducing or by detaining in it an unnecessary quantity of gold and silver is as absurd as it would be to attempt to increase the good cheer of private families by obliging them to keep an unnecessary number of kitchen utensils as the expense of purchasing those unnecessary utensils would diminish instead of increasing either the quantity or goodness of the family provisions so the expense of purchasing an unnecessary quantity of gold and silver must in every country as necessarily diminish the wealth which feeds clothes and lodges which maintains and employs the people gold and silver whether in the shape of coin or of plate are utensils it must be remembered as much as the furniture of the kitchen increase the use of them increase the consumable commodities which are to be circulated managed and prepared by means of them and you will infallibly increase the quantity but if you attempt by extraordinary means to increase the quantity you will as infallibly diminish the use and even the quantity too which in those metals can never be greater than what the use requires were they ever to be accumulated beyond this quantity their transportation is so easy and the loss which attends their lying idle and unemployed so great that no law could prevent their being immediately sent out of the country End of book four, chapter one part a